This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversation with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and I'm joined by Mawera Karatai in Whakatani. Kia ora, Mawera. How's it going there today? It's good. It's been a really nice day to sit in the sun and contemplate. Sounds like a good thing to be doing. And we are joined by Paul Waters, who is in Melbourne. That was a guess. You are in Melbourne, aren't you? I'm in Ballarat, which is a tiny little town about 90 minutes west of Melbourne. But uh, I do work in Melbourne, so I tend to shuttle between the two places. Ballarat. Is it a gold town? City of gold, exactly, yes. And what's I'll just go out to the backyard and pick some up, if that's okay. Isn't it? Wasn't it the, the, the wasn't it the birthplace of the Australian unions or something? Uh, it was certainly the birthplace of the gold rush and also the Eureka Rebellion, in which my great 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 uncle was amongst the uh, very rebellious leadership who rose up against the government to uh, uh, insist on voting rights for non landowners, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's cool. It is something I only discovered about a year ago uh, during my kind of genealogical adventures. But uh, since I've made this discovery, I'm like royalty around town because of this connection to Peter Lawler. So how have things gone in your your safe space, in your bubble? Look, it's been uh, challenging, I think, might be a way to describe it. Victoria, uh, amongst all the states over here, has probably had the most severe restrictions on on movement and, uh, you know, kind of sitting outside and that kind of thing. And uh, slowly they are easing, but, um, you know, it has been quite a a challenge, I think, for many, many people. Are you, were you locked down to your your house and neighbourhood? Yeah, look, pretty much, um, you know, there was sort of a, a time there where essentially, you know, really all non-essential activity was was, was shut down, um, apart from outdoor exercise, as long as you didn't use an outdoor gym or congregate in groups of more than two and people who didn't live with you and so on. And, um, you know, I've taken the opportunity every day to get out and exercise and we have a, a wonderful lake here in Ballarat called Lake Wendaree. And uh, it's about six kilometres around. And, you know, I, I saw a couple of elderly people one day 
also on their daily walk, uh, sit down on a bench, and then, of course, the uh, local patrol car pulled up. Uh, I don't know how they knew, maybe they got CCTV and uh, went along to have a, a bit of a stern word with these pensioners who were clearly very tired from their, their walk. But uh, technically, yes, they were breaching regulations and had to be severely spoken to and probably arrested or something. And the, you said that was the at the worst time. It's it's eased off now in terms of the lockdown. Yeah, it certainly has. So we um, from this last week, we've been able to go out to national parks again, which has been great. So they've kind of expanded that that range of activities. So um, I took the opportunity yesterday to go for a walk up to the, the Grampians National Park here in Victoria and a particular little place called Halls Gap. Um, which is kind of like a big gap between two volcanic kind of peaks almost and a very, very picturesque part of the state. And um, But in reality, I actually only saw about six people on the track the whole day. And so I think although we've got a few more freedoms, people are generally seeming to be, I think, a bit reluctant to actually get outside. Um, you know, so it, it will take some time, I think, for people to, to, to get back to normal. But um, you know, I, I think on the positive side, I mean, I haven't really seen people doing crazy things like congregating in groups or anything like that. I think people just tend to be a bit conservative and uh, and cautious um, as far as these things go. Let's go straight to the New Zealand band Split Ends with Six Months in a Leaky Boat. I had to stress that it's a New Zealand band. Australia's done its best <laughs> to claim them. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we always try and play the best.
New Zealand and Australia seem to have benefited from the tyranny of distance. Uh, look, I, I, I think so. And, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, we've really come through it, um, you know, relatively intact. And, you know, I, I say relatively because I think I think the hardest times are, are yet to come, really, and uh, particularly with, you know, restrictions around international travel and, and that kind of thing. Uh, I think for... You know, for both countries, it is going to be challenging going into the future, uh, particularly around tourism and and inbound education, all these kinds of things. So, in, in some ways, I hate to say, it, but the easy times are kind of behind us. We've got this long, long, long winter to look forward to, and uh, you know, goodness knows how long it will take to get to the other, other side. I think. I had this insight when I was swimming the other day that when we when New Zealand and Australia probably joined together in one big bubble, it's going to be like the Truman Show. The rest of the world <laughs> is going to be looking in because eventually life within the, in, within the country and the countries will pretty much return to normal. It's just that we're going to be cut off. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, the, that's the new reality. Um, and for all the talk about fast-tracking vaccines and so on, I mean, the reality is I think for a a safe and a, a tested vaccine that it, it is going to be years, not months. And, uh, you know, we may have this bubble and be on our own for, for quite some time, but, um, you know, hopefully we can slowly extend that out to, to the Pacific and, uh, you know, whilst, of course, wanting to protect people in, in isolated places from, from getting this disease. Um, you know, it would be horrific, for example, if a if the cook suddenly got it because of some overzealous tourists uh, wanting to go and uh, lay on the beach. But, you know, we've really got to balance that against, you know, the need for, for people to, to earn an income and to, to feed their families. And uh, it's a really, really difficult uh, balancing act, I think. Has there been much support from the government for families in Australia through the lockdown period? Look, I think there's been a fair bit of, uh, there's actually been a lot of support. You know, the, the delivery has been a bit, um, you know, a bit slow at times. Um, so there were some things that were done quite quickly early on, like making childcare completely free, which was, <laughs> you know, if you're a parent and struggling to work, I mean, that was a, a big deal. Um, you know, pretty much overnight they they doubled the, the job seeker payment, which was the old new start payment for people looking for work. Um, so, you know, I guess this was uh, quite good in the sense that it put a lot of money in people's pockets very quickly who were likely to spend it. Um, there were one-off payments to, to pensioners, for example. Um, and, of course, the really big package, which is the, the job keeper package, which essentially is the government subsidising business to keep people on for, for six months, um, which, you know, is, is a, a really expensive program, but, you know, it is just kind of life support really. And, um, you know, hopefully it will uh, continue and in six months' time or, you know, four and a half months' time now, it, it will hopefully we might be in a better place where we, we don't need such support. But, um, you know, I, I think it's been... Really good, um, you know, to see those supports flow through. Um, 
I don't think there's been, I mean, there certainly hasn't been any kind of universal payment or anything like that for, for all families, for example. Um, that's something that, that hasn't happened. Um, but, um, you know, that's that's sort of a level of support at the moment. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to have had a good effect overall. We should treasure and, and grow, you know. It's a safe little part of the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou na mihi aroha nui kia koutou kotaho hau. I hope you're all having the best day. Beautiful, amazing triumphs of nature in your beloved universes. And I hope that today you've just been really enjoying reconnecting and reuniting and reigniting and re-enthusing and rejuvenating and re-energizing and refocusing and recalibrating in this time of freedom that we find ourselves in. And I hope that you're really enjoying all of the reunions that are taking place for you with the people that you love and the places that you love and the parts of yourself that you love that are able to come forward now in this new time of freedom and exploration and discovery. Now we are in level two. And I hope that during your time in level four and level three, you are able to love and enjoy new ways of being and reconnect with ways of being perhaps that you had forgotten about. So I thought that we could enjoy diving and delving together today into something that as a species of animal, the product of literally billions of years of life co-evolving on Earth, we just love. And that, of course, is storytelling and stories. And we can conceptualise all aspects of our lives in terms of stories. And I think we do. And I think we're very inclined towards it. And stories for us, of course one of the reasons that we evolved language and one of the reasons that we continue to evolve and co-evolve so that we can hear more stories from each other we love them and of course they're a wonderful tool for us and not only are they a wonderful tool for us in terms of our consciousness but also in terms of our physical beings and the very life that we are can be conceptualised as a, a living story that we share and we pass on through our beautiful DNA. And that's the story that we currently understand through that wonderful framework of meaning based on love for the world that surrounds us, science. And we're learning more and more all the time of course about who we are and what we can be so i was just really enjoying at this time looking at all the different stories that we're telling each other and that can be in so many different creative ways but in terms of consensus reality which is a collection of all our stories coming together and the sorts of stories that we're telling right now of course are so varied and we can really choose the ones that are best for us in terms of how we want to move forward and so I hope that for you 
you're really enjoying looking at all these stories that are being told and that process of looking through them and choosing which parts of which stories are going to serve you best in terms of the story you want to tell going forward and the story that you want to tell of what has been. And of course, any time we can choose to disidentify from the stories we've been telling and we can start a new story and this freedom is just so beautiful and so exciting. And I'm loving how at this time we can really tell stories so quickly, so immediately thanks to all this wonderful technology that we have created as a species of animal. We're so good at tool use and tool creation. And even just one simple, beautiful image can evoke and tell so many stories. And of course, each consciousness is going to be inspired differently, create different stories. So I would encourage all of you, as I am, as we are heading out into the world, choose those stories that help you feel best. Choose those stories that inspire you to bring the best aspects of yourself and those you love forward. And let go of the stories that don't. This is something we're very good at doing. And this is something that I think is particularly important at this time. So I hope that for all of you, you're really enjoying this process of Raranga Kōrero, interweaving your story with all the stories that surround you. And I'll look forward to having more time with you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. So what work are you doing, Paul? Uh, well, technically I'm on leave at the moment, but uh, I seem to be doing more work while I'm on leave than when I'm working. That makes sense. Um, we're talking about sustainability. Hopefully we're just about to kick off a little bit of a project at the university, um, which is uh, called Net Zero, and uh, it's the drive towards, um, you know, coming up with a, a more sustainable way of working in the long term. Um so net zero emissions, and uh, so I'm going to work with our ICT department to run a bit of a magnifying glass over their their power consumption and and, and utilization, and uh, really go into the data centre and say, look, do we let's measure what we've got, and then let's let's work on some some analytics to say, are we doing things in an optimal way? Where could we do things better? How can we shrink stuff down? How can we reduce consumption and so on? And, uh, you know, so the university has been doing that at, at, a, at a macro level, looking at, at building level because they've got smart meters and things. But uh, this is about now looking at the some of the bigger consumers on campus and saying, hey, you know, uh, some of this equipment and and you know, backup generators and things, I mean, they're, they're really old, they're not efficient, um, how can we improve things? So, yeah, it's an interesting project and uh, I've just been trying to get some money from our management to do the project, so. They'll be saving lots of power at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, kind of, the electricity and, and heating and gas consumption in something like a campus is, is massive. So, 
yeah, I mean, that's one of the, um, I guess, one of the unexpected side effects uh, of having lockdown is, um, you know, uh, probably a good thing that we actually just consume less stuff. Well, it's a bit more distributed. I mean, probably in our homes where we're staying home and heating things and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, I think often on campus, you know, I mean, they, they might heat things like lecture theatres when there's there's nobody there, you know. <laughs> so we have these really big boilers and things and they just rumble along 24 hours a day and uh, there's actually no one there. Which So we when we look at it just from a purely, you know, mathematical point of view, uh, it's really suboptimal you're a cyber security researcher have there been any implications of this lockdown for cyber security yeah absolutely i think the uh you know the scammers and the fishers have gone into overdrive and uh you know kind of the the, the volume of, of cyber criminal activity has just gone through the roof um you know i guess these uh leeches uh take advantage of any any bad situation to try and make a buck. And um, uh, unfortunately, when all of the usual protections have been in place, you know, law enforcement and private sector, um, you know, have often just not been as available. Um, I, I think they've certainly taken advantage of that. I was going to say that the the risks are probably more too with people having to allow access to corporate networks remotely and all that sort of stuff must make it more open more vulnerable i think i think you know there's workplaces have had to adapt really quickly to to the change in circumstances and uh you know security probably wasn't always at the top of their list when they started but you know we we've, we've seen we've seen sort of phenomena like zoom bombing for example uh, emerge when when there is no security on these systems and um you know again that's sort of led to rapid re-engineering of systems and people really thinking about just basic stuff around confidentiality. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Hi there, bubble people. Liesel here saying a big hi to you this afternoon and I hope you're having a really amazing day. Uh, I hope you're you're starting to adjust as we move out into the world at the moment um, in these new uh, times of level two which is pretty exciting but it's also uh, comes with its own little set of I guess um, challenges as we move back through these levels. Isn't it weird, you know, when we went to level four, I was thinking, gosh, this is going to be really, really full on and it all felt really unknown and I guess there was a lot of sort of, um, I, I don't know, trepidation about what that all looked like, because none of us really knew. And then I think we all kind of adapted in our own ways, however that was, to get through the level four situation. And I know for myself, I've created a very cosy little nest here. Um, my my new house that I'd moved into I uh, I guess because I had to kind of unpack get it organized make it sort of home really quickly without much sort of outside world input I uh, really hunkered down and I feel like I've actually as a result created a really lovely wee space for myself which um, 
You know how you don't want to unpack all the boxes when you first move and things? Maybe I would have been a little bit slacker about sort of getting things organised if I hadn't had this sort of looming lockdown uh, right on the back of me moving. So yeah, I've, I've created this lovely wee nest and you may also have created spaces in your house or um, have a house now that you feel is just that little bit cosier or maybe you found that room where you could sort of go off and find your own space when there was um, too many other people around or however you sort of managed that, that level four time. I'm guessing we all found our own little sort of way to, I don't know, have, have, um, have our space feeling okay or making the most of the space I guess that we were in or trying to. Um, weirdly though I feel like the reverse is now happening in terms of as we've you know come out of level four and into level three that was a transition and um, you know came with its own little set of hurdles as we uh, got used to what level three looked like and now obviously the excitement of level two where we're opening things up a bit more uh, also comes with this weird like readjusting stage well it is for me anyway I I don't know how other people are finding it I've talked to a couple of people that have sort of said yeah it's it's exhausting out there in level two land <laughs> have to get used to this and isn't it strange that we've we've only been sort of like um, separated off from each other for seven weeks or something which you know in the bigger picture is not a long long time I mean it's a decent chunk of time but it's it's not like a three or four years of, of a war or something like that you know we really we um, you know in context it's not a long time but strangely it's like a reacclimatization to society and I know I, uh, I've been forcing myself to sort of go out and encounter people because I, um, I realized that I've sort of quite enjoyed this peace and quiet that I've cultivated and the little nest that I have here in my home that I've spent most of my time in and now going back out into that world that I was occupying before and living quite happily in and not really thinking that much about and just going about my sort of uh, daily routine every day and no real thinking about what I was doing as such whereas all the people that were around me and now um, everything feels like a, you sort of are super aware of everything that you are doing. So I went to the op shop and that I thought was, why not? I'll just jump in the deep end, go straight into the op shop on a, on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, I, um, I've, I've done a couple of things like that over the last few days or so. And uh, I, just, I just love putting myself back into this sort of crazy soup of humanity um, but interested in my response the way that I'm having to just sort of retrain myself to be back in in the land of people and it's a land I love but I am having to readjust and I wonder if you are too. Anyway I hope you are taking care of yourselves and uh, look forward to our next conversation. had an increase in the amount of spam that I'm getting hit with constantly and it's getting more sophisticated to the point where I almost got sucked in the other day I was so close to clicking on a link because it really did look so legitimate and then I thought oh no I've never had an email like that from them before so I rang them and checked right it's getting so clever look I, I had um you know I had a slightly you know different experience which was someone making a sales pitch to me directly um, 
kind of having gone through and scanned a whole range of my servers and trying to point out various things that were wrong and uh, for a fee they could come and fix them for me and uh, so I kind of felt afterwards that what's the difference between these guys and a, and a bunch of crooks and um, so I, I did send off a report to, to IC3 and the FBI because um, you know uh, if this is their pre-sales tactic uh, I'd hate to <laughs> I hate to see what the real service is like and uh you know just kind of pointed it out to them saying like this is really not ethical you know the way that you i gave you no authorization to go and do this uh this work and um you know of course they wrote back very apologetically and said that oh we didn't mean anything but you know it's it's kind of like prowling around someone's front door or trying to open their windows to say hey you left your window open or i can smash the window and therefore it's vulnerable you know it's yeah, it was kind of a new low for me and kind of seeing a legitimate yeah. company do that. <laughs> and then if that becomes the new normal, then that's pretty scary, isn't it, really? Yeah, look, I think, you know, certainly to me, um, I think particularly in the, the university sector and, and, and maybe in cyber, I think, you know, um, ethics and, and honesty and integrity really are, are really core to what we do and um you know i think there's been uh, uh, a few cases in in higher education in australia recently where it's you know we had, had um you know corruption commissions and so on you know doing investigations at, at some very high levels of, of what's going on and uh the more that our universities are run like businesses um the more I think we're likely to encounter exactly those kinds of problems that, that businesses often find themselves in, you know, um, uh, you know, unconscionable conduct, you know, mis-selling of, of fake products and so on, uh, selling insurance that no one can claim on. I mean, all these examples have come out here in, in, in Aussie in the past few years with, with the Financial Royal Commission and, um, you know, so perhaps as, as our public learning institutions become corporatized, um, we start seeing some of this stuff creeping in and it's, it's really disappointing. Um, and something I think that we need to keep restating as, uh, you know, as just as ordinary citizens, that that's not the kind of path that we want to go down. Um, but, you know, it's something that I, I see arising here in Australia. Do we teach our computer science students enough ethics and values for them to be able to contribute to those sorts of discussions? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I think that's that's one of the the key issues. You know, we um, we we teach people how to code. We teach people how to you know create databases, but we we don't really talk enough about the, the consequences um, of, of misuse of these technologies, and we don't. You know, I think uh, spend uh, anywhere near enough time. Um, I know this is something that that the the Computer Society here, as the accrediting body for our degrees, has certainly um, uh, brought up from time to time. And uh, you know, but I, I think it's something that we need to weave into every aspect of of our teaching. You know, um, we've had a lot of discussion here in Australia around things like you know, contact tracing and COVID-19 apps and things like that. Um, I don't think, I mean, ironically, I don't think computer scientists here have really made a, a huge contribution to that discussion, uh, which is unfortunate. But it's the computer scientists or our graduates that will be implementing these things. 
Correct, correct. And, you know, there were some really uh, sort of strange time sequences here where, you know, the, the app was rushed out um, with the promise of the source code being released, then the source code was released, but it wasn't complete. So what's the point of releasing all the uncontroversial source code if you're not actually going to, to show us the meat of the product? You know, we, we need to have that kind of public scrutiny, I think, uh, for people to feel confident. And uh, already I see some privacy researchers, you know, looking at the code and saying, hey, you know, did you realise that X could happen if you do Y or, you know, um, identifying some potential vulnerabilities. And so, you know, we, we just really need to make sure that um, that we have sophisticated technologies that, uh, that these things are not going to lead to more centralised power. Um, you know, our intelligence services last week, um, you know, received some, some new powers, for example, in the midst of the COVID crisis to forcibly question 14-year-olds and about now, you know, what's the kind of urgency in the middle of a public health disaster to suddenly rush this legislation through, again, with without any scrutiny? Um, and I'm not saying that it's not necessary, but I'm saying that, that there hasn't been anything, you know, in, in terms of public discussion around that. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's sort of, it, it'd be a shame to see some of these things rush through in the, in the cover of a public health emergency when they probably don't have anything to do with public health. We've got an election coming up shortly, September, and there's a push for online elections uh, because people are worried about standing in queues to, you know, tick their box. And uh, so that's bringing up this the, that same ethical dilemma again. Are we ready? Can it be interfered with? What are the implications? Um, it's it's a it's a really interesting time, isn't it? That we've got some technology that is available to us that can make life easier for things like that and reduce our risk, but it yeah. comes with yeah. risk. Look, and it comes with you know it comes with risk. It it comes with. Um you know, risks of, of things like voter suppression as well. So, you know, if you um, if you live in a, a low-income household and you don't have a computer at home and, you know, you can't get to the library because it's locked down and that's the only way you can vote, then, you know, suddenly your vote doesn't count. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, everybody's voice needs to be heard and uh, so we need to find, you know, I think some some clever ways to, to, to try and address that. And, um, you know, certainly during the crisis, one of the things that happened was that the government just went and bought a few thousand computers and a few thousand modems and started dishing them out to kids because, you know, moving all the teaching online meant that this, this uncomfortable fact came out, which is that, you know, uh, something like 15% of households here don't have a computer at home. And we, you know, many of us just assume that everybody has one. Um, and so how can kids learn if they don't have the basic tools? Yes. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a non-trivial problem, yeah, because it's the 15% the or so who, who don't have a computer and then can't vote. I mean, they're the ones who are probably wearing the consequences of, of lots of changes in government policy. So, you know, it's, it's really important that everybody has a, a turn. I'm probably more concerned about accessibility than I am about, you know, tampering or or hacking or, you know, but I mean, having said that, I mean, it's a, 
it's a you know it's a significant risk that that state actors who've got a, a vested interest in the election outcome will will invest a huge amount of time, effort, and resource to try and swing the election. If someone I'm early, not mentioning the country by name, but you know, I mean, you, you can probably guess uh, <laughs> there would be a few who would who would have something to gain. Someone early in the COVID response, I think it was the Secretary of Education, Mawira might remember, said that a pandemic doesn't create inequity, it reveals it. Yes. Right, yeah, I, I totally I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, I remember actually back many, many years ago when I started my tertiary computer science training, um, you know, I didn't have a computer at home. Um we had exactly two hours of lab time allocated on campus per week to learn programming. Um, and so, you know, kind of looking back at it now, I mean, it, it seems absurd to say, how can someone study computer science without a computer? <laughs> <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> so it's a bit like, you know, like I see now, I mean, how can, how can some kids do distance education from home when everything is provided on an LMS that, uh, you know, some kids just don't have access. So I'm really um, kind of attuned to these to these things um, because I've been through the same experience. And, I mean, it's not nice. It just, it just sets you up for failure. And even in normal, in normal circumstances when we haven't got a pandemic, we're, we're becoming so digital-focused that and, and inequity doesn't provide resources for so many of our young people and so they are excluded and they feel different from everybody else and there's that whole shame factor which stops them wanting to go to school which means they immediately don't have the same opportunities which further deepens their sense of no hope, no hopefulness yeah. and it's a cycle that just goes round and round and round. Absolutely. Look, and you know, there's... Um you know, I mean, we've had this whole, you know, closing the gap concept for about 12 years here in Aussie and, um, you know, every year there's a scorecard and every year there just seems to be not really a lot of progress. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, again, is again being revealed by, by COVID, for example, is just some basic things like if you live in a remote community, what's the price of a a roll of toilet paper, assuming that there is actually going to be a delivery. Um, and so while in the cities, of course, we all you know, did without toilet paper for a, a few weeks, um, you know, this is this is the, the daily reality of some people who live in, in remote communities or even things like the cost of fuel, you know, um, which is uh, kind of at 1980s levels uh, here in Aussie at the moment. Um, but, you know, again, even in remote communities during the crisis, when, when the cost of crude oil was actually in negative, um, people there were still paying world record prices. Um, so if you're getting the same unemployment benefit in a remote community versus the inner city, um, there might be very big differences in, in, in your purchasing power with that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I've got an answer. I'm just pointing out that these things have just become revealed and, uh, you know, it's, it's important for people to kind of reflect on that, you know. Let's reflect on that by playing Blue Oyster Colts Don't Fear the Reaper. 
So, Paul, we've seen a whole lot of societal changes in the last six weeks, eight weeks. Time seems to have lost all meaning. (laughs) What do you think will stick and what do you hope will stick? Oh, look, uh, what do I hope will stick? Well, it it sounds like a basic thing, but I I hope that uh, good hygiene comes out of this and, and maybe universally good hygiene. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a challenge in, in modern multicultural society to come up with norms around hygiene that are accepted by everybody. And, uh, you know, I think this is something which is going to be front and centre. We've almost uh, lost sight of, of those basics, I think, and so something like that I think is going to be really important. Um, and so... People struggling to work, coughing and sneezing and spluttering because the boss wants them to come in, that's not going to be acceptable anymore. Um, and uh, and really, it never should have been acceptable. So, you know, hopefully out of this as well, there'll be some new norms around around work and, and expectations of work. Um, I'd like to think that a result in a, in a better work-life balance for everybody. Um, you know, the, the flip side is that there will probably be some some challenges ahead, and particularly I think around around earning income. Um, but you know, also we need to think about whether or not we've we've got the mix of of things right um, in society, particularly around you know, provision of just essential services, and uh, uh, whether things like toilet paper should be considered an essential service. I don't know, but certainly things like PPE for hospitals. Um, you know, this reliance on just-in-time manufacturing to ship a whole bunch of stuff from China on the overnight flight, I mean, that, that thinking has to just go and we need to, to have a, a much more resilient society where we, we can provide these basics for, for everybody. Um, and, look, I, I, I see that as a, as a positive challenge. It's a really a good time, I think, for us to reflect on the sort of societies we want going forward and... Uh, things probably leading up to this crisis, you know, if you kind of look back, maybe things weren't quite in balance. Do you think we can learn something for how we deal with bigger questions, climate change, social equity, social justice, all those sorts of things? Look, I'd I'd like to think so, but I, you know, I think, I think my experience is that, you know, the, the large and powerful institutions in our society are, are really quite rigid in their in their thinking and are very very slow to change. Um, well, vested and not changing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And um, you know, I think that's that's the big challenge that, that I see. You know, how do we how do we empower people at the grassroots level to make changes, and how do we empower them to make decisions about living within their own communities? Um, without relying so much on sort of these large institutions and centralised authority to kind of tell us how to live our lives. I'd like to see less of that kind of thinking in some ways, um, really in terms of sustainability. I mean, I think that goes to the heart of the, the question, you know, say here in Aussie, do we give everybody a set of solar panels for free or do we keep, you know, um, relying on centralised electricity generation and and very expensive, inefficient distribution? I mean... It seems pretty straightforward to me, but um, there's lots of vested interests uh, <laughs> uh, in the way. And, um, you know, we've seen uh, here in Aussie particularly 
you know, a number of royal commissions looking at institutions and, um, you know, things like institutional sex abuse. Um, and, you know, the, the good thing, I think, in the past few years is that we've We've shined. We've, we've sort of shone a spotlight in some some very uncomfortable quarters, and uh, yeah, we, we've seen some real changes come through. And um, I, I think not all the changes that everybody wants have, have always happened, but I, I think there's definitely been progress. And um, you know, I, I think it's sort of up to all of us to really um, talk to our, our our politicians and our representatives and really just tell them what we think. I mean, I um. I, I speak a lot to our, our state MP and our, our federal MP and their officers here and, um, you know, I think they've actually been extremely responsive to, to pretty much everything I've ever brought up. And, uh, you know, I think that's just something I, I'm doing more and more often now is actually just letting them know what I think. Because they say, here comes Paul. Do you know who his great uncle was? <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I'd, I'd like to think that I was sort of uh, terrifying them into into submission, but um, you know, I, I think the more that that people kind of just talk to them about their actual concerns, the less they are driven by the the media bubble, you know, and the, and the media just tends to kind of you know uh, invent crises and, and and push particular points of view that uh, you know shock jocks and all the rest of it. Um, and probably for what most people really think, it's it's a bit dis- disconnected. I have some questions to end with and not very much time to ask them, so I shall edit and we'll have to be quick. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, well, I've got recently some funding from, from MB to do a joint project uh, with my colleagues in New Zealand, which is great, which I think means they get all the money and I do all the work. Um, <laughs> Doesn't sound uh, like a success. I think it seems fair. Um, <laughs> had some great support for for my work uh, combating child exploitation around the world and coming up with ways to prevent people uh, getting access to that material and trying to change public perceptions of that. So yeah, they're probably my sort of big big ticket items at the moment. Yeah. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes: The Team of People Doing Good Work. So you're in our mansion. What's your superpower that got you there? Ah, uh, just sheer, sheer persistence and bloody mindedness. I think. Um, I think. I think. You know, looking back, uh, at some point, I, I probably really had an epiphany and said, you know, if I really want to achieve something in in life, then uh, you know, you you better bloody well get into it and uh, give it your best. I mean, you know, rather than just, you know, kind of coasting along and hoping that success will, will just turn up one day. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, yeah, definitely. And, you know, again, I think if you ask my local MPs, what am I ringing up all about? It's, it's often <laughs> around issues around autism and disability and inclusion. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm definitely an activist in, in that area. <laughs> What challenge are you looking forward to in the next couple of years? Uh, my biggest challenge is, is getting back to Aotearoa and anything except a canoe at this stage. <laughs> but I'm working on it. <laughs> and lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Hey, look, I think, you know, when you're locked in and you've got plenty of time to, to think and reflect on, on the big questions of life, you know, just, just take the opportunity to, to do that and to, you know, connect with your 
your friends and whanau and, uh, you know, just try and make the best of it. Yeah. Moera? And playing the Gold Coast holiday. That's probably the free, <laughs> uh, bit of free advice there from the Gold Coast Tourism Authority. We should be planning a Ballarat holiday. Yes. Not, a, not in winter. It's freezing cold. <laughs> You've got a gold, great. There's a gold mine exhibition, isn't there? There is. You can come to uh, Sovereign Hill and you can pan for gold. You can go down the gold mine and, you know, you can see people running around in traditional Victorian dress and red coats and all kinds of stuff. It's fun. Moira? Um, closing thoughts. I think we need to have a conference in Ballarat. <laughs> Deal. Definitely. Thank you very much. You've been listening to You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversation with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook. As well, we've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and Paul Waters in Ballarat. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air.